Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. You might be wondering, what is Sojourn? That's the question I think I get asked most often when I say, I go to Sojourn, like, what's that? Or they try to, like, repronounce it and not know what it is. Sojourn is it's a quest, it's a journey, it's a reminder for us as believers that this place that we live in is not our home. It's not our home for very long. We have places we call home, we like to set up shop there, but we're not going to be here very long. And so as we're thinking through who we are as, as believers here and now on this earth, we're, we're sojourners, we're travelers, we're just passing through onto a better and more um, lasting city that is to come. And so sojourn is this reminder to us. That we don't want to set up a kingdom here because we have a greater kingdom than is to come. That we don't want to set up permanent residence here. We want to live out of the suitcase here so that later on we will have this great home forevermore in heaven. And as sojourners, we're, we're travelers. Have you ever had a change of travel plans that caused some misunderstandings or some strife in your life? I remember one time... My brother and I were going outside to play basketball. We grew up outside of town, so it was just like, if you had friends at that point, you didn't go into it, you just had your, your siblings. I had one brother, he was three years older than me. So if we wanted to play basketball, unless we were just going to be by ourselves, it was, it was with each other. So I don't remember how exactly it happened, but we decided to go play basketball. I thought this was a great plan. Uh, my brother, although he was older than me, was, was fairly short and I was fairly tall. So I, I thought, my chances are still pretty good. Well, as the, the game went along, um, my chances got worse and worse. He was much better than me in almost every way. And I did not like this reality for my life. So I decided to change plans. My plans were, once I started getting behind and score, not hitting any baskets and continuing getting scored on, my plans decided, like, I think I'll, I'll change my plans and, and go do something else. My brother didn't take kindly to this. He was, and has still to this day, he he does not quit. He does not like quitting. He didn't like it in me, and he didn't like it in this game. And so as I changed plans, um, trouble uh, ensued. My brother decided to chase after me. I was kind of running away, and and, uh, he pinned me down, or I pinned him down. I don't know, it was really confusing. And uh, told me all about why this was a bad idea that I quit playing this, this game. So my change of plans caused this misunderstanding between us that I don't think he fully still grasped, maybe even to this day. It caused some strife that we didn't have a ton of. Well, as we, we look at 2 Corinthians today, chapter 1, and kind of finishing up chapter 1 and starting chapter 2, there's been a misunderstanding between Paul and these Corinthians because of this change of travel plans that Paul has made. And that seems like a strange way to, to talk about it. That's exactly what's going on. Paul has changed his travel plans, and now, because of that, the Corinthians have this misunderstanding between them, and they're questioning him. They're questioning his authority over them. They're questioning his apostleship. They're calling all of those things into question here just because he changed his travel plans. Now I want to bring back up kind of the chronology of what we have going on here so you can kind of refresh and know again as he addresses this issue what's going on here and why they're so upset. Because here's the rub. They are claiming that Paul is kind of being wishy-washy because he changed his travel plans and they're right. So how are we going to defend this, Paul? How are you going to go about this? And I think some chronology will help us here. So this is up on the screen to follow along with. But the summer of 53... Paul sends 1 Corinthians, the letter that we have in our Bible, and Timothy. 
And he's saying in, in 1 Corinthians, at the very end in chapter 16, he says, I hope to spend the winter with you. And he's thinking about the winter of, of 54-55. Now, once again, the dates don't necessarily, the year doesn't necessarily have to be specific and exact, but this is kind of just a roundabout time. So he sends it in the summer of 53, and he says, 54-55, I want to spend a long time with you. I want to, I want to spend the winter there. Timothy returns with bad news. The church is in disarray. The Corinthians aren't responding the way they're supposed to be responding. The way they should be responding is as believers, as a church, to this letter that Paul has written. So Paul changes his travel plans. He travels to Corinth. Kind of after the summer, it just comes around to where the the season is open for him to travel again. So spring of 54, he makes what we call and what we know as the sorrowful visit to them. Now it's at this sorrowful visit to them that maybe Paul tells them, like, I want to, I want to, and plan to come back and return to you in the coming months. We're not for sure about that, but it seems like that's kind of what Paul has hinted at. In the summer of 54, Paul has already left. He's, he's gone and made this sorrowful visit. He's left. It was a short visit. And he receives word from Titus about the situation there. That there is some harsh criticism against Paul. That there are some things that from the sorrowful visit didn't get responded to once again as they probably should have. And so he fires off this harsh letter, this sorrowful letter. Now it's perhaps once again in this letter that Paul says, I'm not going to come to you as I told you when I visited you. And instead, kind of this harsh letter was taking the place of his next visit. So he says, I'm not going to return for some time, not wishing, as he says in this passage, to have another sorrowful visit with you. And it seems like the harsh letter that we don't have in the Scripture seems to have taken the place of Paul's visit that he said he was going to take to them. And then what happened was is that this disappointed the Corinthians, or at least energized the, the base against Paul. They started seeing like, well, look at what Paul's doing here. We can question his actions, his change of travel plans. He said he'd come again, and he didn't come. So now what are we supposed to think of him? You can see how his opponents could grab a hold of this and really go forward with this. But they use this not just to question his change of travel plans and be like, see, what's, what's the deal? Why is he changing travel plans? They use this to question much, much more. They use this change of travel plans to question Paul's integrity, and even kind of in a way, his right as an apostle. So this passage from from verse 12 in chapter 1 all the way through verse 4 in chapter 2, the ones we're looking at today, is Paul's response to this. Paul's response to these opponents and all that's going on. What he's doing here is seeking to justify his decision, defending his change of plans. And he does this in a peculiar way. Not by just saying, you know what? Forget it, Corinthians. I'm done with you. Change my travel plans all I want. You don't have no authority. I'll do what I want. He could have done that. He doesn't. He doesn't. Just rail on them and say, you guys are ridiculous. Which he could have, right? They're being ridiculous in some ways. His opponents are being ridiculous. He doesn't do that. He's not venting his hurt feelings. He could have done that too. Surely he had some hurt feelings. Surely some of their response to what he's given and poured out for them hurt him. But he doesn't do that either. And he doesn't say, you know what, you guys just don't appreciate me and go on and on. He doesn't do any of that. That's about the opposite of everything I would have done. So even in Paul's going about this and how he addresses the situation, he's convicting to me. Because if this happened to me, I would have done one of those other things. And Paul doesn't do any of that. What does Paul do? He addresses them with transparency. He shows how his change of plans is consistent with his behavior before them. He shows how his change of plans is consistent with the nature and character of God. And he shows how his change of plans is consistent with love. So he begins with this transparent uh, statement showing that his plans are still consistent with the behavior he's always had before them. Look in verse 12. He says, Our boast is this, 
the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Paul starts out with a boast, which seems like a pretty bold thing, but we've got to remember what he's boasting in. He says, my conscience is clear. I've behaved with simplicity and sincerity in this world before you guys. Like He's showing, like, I've done this. I've had this consistent behavior before you. He's celebrating this integrity that, that God, by His grace, has worked in and through His ministry that should be evident to these Corinthians. So his integrity, he says, it's intact by God's grace. And so his behavior is confirming God's grace at work in his life. It's confirming that God is working in here and not just some random wishy-washy Paul. God's at work. So they should know his integrity by his behavior toward them that's been consistent throughout. He says in verse 13, We're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand. His behavior has been consistent. His writing and correspondence to them has been consistent. Nothing's out of line. He hasn't written some like hidden deep message like, Oh, Corinthians, you just missed the message. You're supposed to read between the lines here. He hasn't done any of that. He's out in front of them with his life and with his writing. He wants them to take like the plain meaning. Like this is what it means. There's, There's no secret hidden agenda here. I'm not being tricky. He's not veiling his behavior or his writing. Everything has been done with the utmost integrity. And he wants them to know this so that he can say stuff like he says in verse 14. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, and we will boast of you. That's what he wants, this mutual boasting. They should be proud of their apostle, the one that brought them the gospel, the one that's poured his life into them. They should be proud of his integrity, because he has lived with the utmost integrity, especially before them. If anybody should know it, it should be them. And so there should be this mutual boasting going on, instead of this bickering and and harsh criticism of Paul for changing travel plans. This is what he's getting at. So his integrity before them is actually linked to them. And I'll tell you how. Because if he is not this man of integrity, then that has huge implications for the gospel that he brought to them. Because if Paul is now all of a sudden in question based on his character, then what do we think about the message that he brought to them? And so if they're trusting in this gospel message, then they ought to trust in as well his integrity that's been consistent throughout. They're they're linked. And because those things are linked, their boasting is linked. I should boast of you and you boast of me. Because he says, I have this clear conscience before you. My behavior has been consistent. He came to them. He proclaimed the gospel to them. He planted. He watered. And if he's off, and if his integrity is really off, then they're off. And it's a big problem for both parties. And so in response to this, this question of his integrity, Paul's pointing out, My behavior before you has been consistent by the grace of God. It's God has been working in me. And it's this is my integrity before you. This is my boast. Not in myself, but God's grace is working in me. My conscience is clear before you. Now it's fun if you meet new people to start discussing like mutual friends. Like you know somebody that's from somewhere where you know somebody. You're like, oh, do you know so-and-so? This summer we got to go to Kansas City to a conference. And we went to a baseball game, obviously. The Royals were playing. And we got these random seats with a bunch of people from this conference. We didn't know anybody there. We randomly go up and sit in our seat. And I sit right next to a guy. And I started telling him kind of where I was from. He's like, oh yeah, do you know so-and-so? And I was like, yes I do. Like, this guy is from Illinois. He lives in Illinois. He's been in Illinois for a long time. And he asked me if I knew someone. I'm like, yes, actually, that's one of my good friends. One of my pastor friends in Texas. Like, what are the chances? But when I heard that, when there was this mutual knowledge of somebody, what was happening? I was like, oh yeah, he's a great guy. Love him. Like, he's been awesome. 
If it would have been somebody that I don't really like, I would be like, oh yeah, I know, sure. Uh, yeah, he's there. Yeah, he's there. Yeah, that's we know him. Sure do. But when it's somebody that you know, when it's somebody that you trust, when it's somebody you know the character of, you know them well, there's there's this automatic boasting. It's like, yeah, I know him, he's a great guy. How do you know him? And you must be a great guy too if you know him and think he's cool. Like, we became friends out of that. And that's what Paul is wanting. He's wanting this glad-hearted partnership, this close ministry relationship. They shall share their boasting of one another because they know Paul's consistent behavior. They know his consistent writing. There's not some hidden agenda there. He's not being tricky. And they have responded to it rightly. That's what he's hoping. You know one another well enough. You know each other's behavior and integrity enough to say, yes, I can boast of our apostles. He can boast in us because it's the grace of God that's working in us. There ought to be some confidence based on their behavior that's consistent because that is a sign, that's a display that God's grace is at work. That's what Paul is hoping and wishing that they would have seen in him. You've seen my behavior. I'm acting with this clear conscience before you. You've seen my writings. You know all these things. This shouldn't be this problem that it is. My, my integrity is before you. You ought to know these things. Especially before you, he says. The Corinthians, they had this up-close personal view of Paul's life. He was there for 18 months. He's had lots of correspondence back and forth with him. If anybody should know his consistent behavior, his character, his integrity, it ought to be this church. And yet, it's all coming up into question. But beyond his behavior, Paul writes how his actions were consistent with the character of God. If you look in verse 15, he says, "...because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first." So that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So Paul is is getting to the issue that's at hand here. This change of travel plans. This seems to be the thing that they are holding on to and holding up. So you see, Paul's not a good apostle. He's not someone you should listen to. He has no authority here. He's changing his travel plans. So his opponents are using this as evidence to say he is illegitimate as apostle. We shouldn't listen to him. We don't need to be under his authority. And you could see some of the things they would have said. See, look at Paul. He changes his mind. That doesn't reflect God. God never changes. God never would lie to us. He would never do this and go back and forth. See, what, what do we listen to Paul for? And so his opponents would use this as an indication that Paul isn't a man of his word. Can't be trusted, so why would we even listen to this letter? Can't listen to some of the things he's said. You've seen him, he's changed his travel plans. He's going all over the place. And so what Paul is doing here is he's describing his rationale of, of changing the first, of, of having his plans originally, and then kind of of the change from there. So he says to them, I wanted to give you a second opportunity of grace. A second experience of grace. In other words, he wanted to give them another opportunity to support the ministry. Another opportunity to send money to help and support to other places. Another opportunity to send him on his way in gospel mission. He wanted to do this for them. That was his original plans. But the situation changed. And so what did Paul do in in response to the situation changing? They didn't respond the right way they should have. There was all sorts of problems. He had to make a sorrowful visit. He had to write a sorrowful letter. So he changed his plans. Why? Why did he do that? Well, Paul is, is not saying that what I did was inconsistent with who God is, or inconsistent with my word, or inconsistent with my behavior. The situation changed, so Paul changed. Because of the change that his opponents blamed him of, they think that he's this self-centered, waffling apostle that just can make decisions here, back and forth. And so he says in verse 17, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? 
As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul wasn't waffling when he made the decision. The situation changed dramatically. It got really out of hand. It got really bad enough to make a sorrowful visit and write a sorrowful letter. So he changed his plans. He wasn't being wishy-washy. He was responding to the situation that was going on at Corinth. He also is showing in this passage, real here in these, these verses, how his plans were still consistent with the character of God. He says, they've been consistent with my behavior before you. I'm not changing my behavior. You still know my integrity. But it's also consistent with the character of God. It's not out of line with who God is. He's saying that his decisions are based off or driven by the character of God. Just as God is faithful, our word hasn't been yes and no to you. They've been consistent. And so he makes commitments and changes. Not on whims, but on who God is and responding to the needs of the situation at hand. And so in great Pauline style, he kind of tells us, here's a summary of the foundation of the truth of God that we we make decisions based off of. If you look in verse 19, he says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Now it would be great to kind of just take those two verses out and forget about the context for a while. But we don't really want to do that because that's a really bad way to study the Bible. Paul is saying that he, he brought them the gospel with this no uncertainty, no contradictions. They proclaimed Jesus and they proclaimed Him as this one who is absolutely reliable. And so what he's going to do is say, like, my character is not out of line with this, as you'll see. But we ought to know for sure that Jesus is the one who is absolutely reliable. There's no yes and no in Him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All these promises that have question marks at the end of them, Jesus is the response to us, to humanity. The promise of Abraham that God gave. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you father of many nations. It finds its yes in Jesus. The promise to David, I'm going to give you a king, a descendant, who's going to sit on the throne forever. And he's going to reign and rule over all his enemies. The yes is found in Jesus. The promise of this new and better covenant is found in Jesus. Jesus is God's yes to humanity. So what that means is that yes, sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. That means yes, sins can really be forgiven. It means, yes, we can have this fulfillment of the law that we can never do on our own, but it can be achieved through someone. Yes, we can come as we are, sinners, weak, sojourners. Yes, sinners can have a relationship forevermore with the God. Yes, the dead can be raised. Yes, they can live with Him forevermore. All of these yeses are all through Jesus. And what Paul is getting at is that is absolutely sure and reliable. And that is what we brought to you. But think about the plan and promises of God. Think about them finding their yes in Jesus. It didn't happen in a way that it was expected. In fact, it was quite unexpected. Almost so much that no one recognized the Savior when He came. Kings aren't born in barns. They don't live in Nazareth. We could go on and on and on, up until the point where we can say, Kings don't die on crosses. They reign and rule. This was an unexpected thing in Jesus, in the crucifixion. These promises are finding their yes in an unexpected way. So the plans aren't being laid out as everybody thinks they are. They're being laid out in, in greater wisdom than anybody would even know in God Himself. 
In order to fulfill these promises, in order to pour out His grace, in order to reign supreme, Christ had to die. No one doesn't seem saw that coming. Even the disciples, as Jesus is telling them this is coming, they don't believe it. But God was meeting the needs of humanity the way that they needed to be met. So Paul's defense here is this. My intention to you has always been the same. My intention to you has not changed. But I have changed some of my ways about going about this to meet your needs. To meet the situation that's going on. And so the only problem that we can take with Paul here is that he doesn't have the ability to anticipate all those needs as God does. God didn't send Jesus as this plan B to find this yes. All the promises need to find their yes. Let's send Jesus. We better get this figured out. But Paul did have to change his plans. He didn't know how to meet all the needs and all the problems that were going to happen. He didn't know how to anticipate that. God doesn't have that problem. Paul does. So it seems a little bit harsh for the Corinthians to come to him and think that he's wishy-washy given some of these realities. This is what Paul is getting at. It seems like you're overcritical here based on what I know, not all-knowing. So he concludes with this, pointing to all of God's work in verse 21-22. It says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul's ministry, he says, is marked by the Spirit. It's this godly ministry before you. It's consistent with the character and nature of God because it's marked by His very presence, His Spirit. So God is the one who's establishing His ministry. And so, if you see it from the other end, from from the Corinthian end, if His ministry isn't being established, that means you're out of line with God, not just out of line with Paul. God is establishing this ministry because Paul's ministry is consistent with God, with the character of God, and in, in line with the Spirit. And so when I look at this section, this, this chunk we just did, 15 through 22, like this is a pretty confusing thing. If you just took a couple verses out of there, like we would all like to just like make those our life verses, all that find their promises, yes in Jesus. But when we look at it in context, like it can get overwhelming. But I think just against the accusation of, of Paul's integrity and of his waffling on making decisions, what Paul is doing, he's defending his change, saying what I'm doing is consistent with the character of God. I've been faithful to minister to you just as God is faithful. Time and time and time again in response to the needs and the situation that's at hand. So why change plans, Paul? Because the situation dramatically changed. Because the response to these letters and these visits didn't go as he would have wanted them to go. And so in response to that, he changed his plans. That certainly doesn't mean that he wasn't consistent with the character of God. I think that's a little bit harsh. They're looking at it a little bit too critically. And maybe his opponents are just looking for an excuse to bring accusations against him. He wanted any plans, even changes in his plans, to reflect God. That seems to be his main concern. If we get nothing out of 15 through 22, Paul's concerned with being consistent with who God is. He wasn't concerned about never changing his plans. He wasn't concerned about always pleasing them. He was concerned about being consistent with who God is and living in light of that. And so he didn't know when, if... Why situations would change like they did in Corinth? But he was open to changing his own plans due to changing circumstances. He could do this because he wasn't caught up trying to tightrope God's will in his life. He wasn't receiving some divine revelation from God that said, you have to go to Corinth at this time, and then you have to go at this time. He didn't do all that. He made plans. He said, I love these people. I want to minister to these people. So he made plans. He just planned it out and was led by the Spirit. 
He didn't plan as one who had all knowledge. He didn't plan on one who has all wisdom, who could see what was coming. He just planned. He didn't have some sort of magic compass of God's will saying, oh, go to Corinth. It's not how Paul was happening. I like what one commentator said. He said, Paul's concern was not whether this or that itinerary corresponded to some hidden will of God that he must set out to discover, but whether his itinerary would reflect the character of God. And what he's getting at here is that my itinerary does reflect the character of God. You know, at times I think that we fall into some strange thinking, even some strange theology at times, that we have to know God's specific plan for us. Many of us have probably wondered that. What is God's will for my life? And what we mean is not what is God's will, period, but what, what is God's individual, specific will for my life? And so we ask these questions. We think about it. We pray about it. We turn to Scripture about, God, what's your will to, for my life? What do you want me to do? How do I make this decision? What do I do with this job? Who do I marry? Who's the one? And often when we get some sort of, any sort of inkling from any of those things that actually lines up with what we really want to do, we're like, that must be God's will. Right? You ever done that? You ever said, like, you really just wanted to marry this person? And you're like, God, is this, my, is this your will? And you get some sort of, like, someone comes along and says, she's a nice girl. Oh, nice girl, that's it. We're going with this. God's will. That's confirmed by community right there. Right? We do that. When we get this inkling that it lines up with actually what we actually want to do in the first place, then we go for it. Or if we don't hear anything at all, then we get discouraged. And we think, man, God's holding out on us. Does He even care about my life or me individually, and what we can do is we can end up treating it kind of like God and the Scriptures, this magic eight ball. Where we can just ask it these specific questions, shake it up, who am I supposed to marry, look at the answer, and find something out. So if we get something we like, it's like, should I take this job? Signs point to yes. Great. I actually want to take the job anyway. I'm glad they confirmed it with the magic eight ball. Or, will I have suffering in this life? Shake it up. Don't count on it. Great. Love it. Don't want suffering anyway. But here's the problem with all of this. Is that obviously God isn't this magic eight ball we can just ask a specific question to and He just spit out an answer. And the Scripture certainly isn't that. Here's the, here's the thing that you probably won't hear very often from pastors. Is that God never promises to reveal to you His individual plan for you. In fact, I can think you can make the sure bet that He will never reveal His individual plan for you. He's not going to do it. The Bible doesn't tell us the individual will for our lives because the Bible isn't about us. The Bible is primarily about God and what He has done, is doing, and will be doing. So we shouldn't turn it into this magic eight ball and say, like, what job decision should I make? And let's go find it in the Scripture. And when you find something that says, oh, go. They're like, oh, go. That must mean I should go. We shouldn't treat it like that. We don't read it to know what we're going to eat for lunch or what job we're going to take. We read the Bible to know God. We get to know Him. We don't turn the Bible thinking we need some sort of revelation for our individual plan in our life. Some hidden will from God needs to be revealed to us. That's not why we turn the Bible. He doesn't give us this individual will. He gives us Himself. He says, this is who I am. Live in light of that. He doesn't give us this individual plan. He gives us this overall plan. He says, fit in with that. He doesn't give us our future. He gives us the future. And He says, live in light of that. This is what God is doing. This is who He is. This is what the Scripture does. He does tell us what He wants for our lives, but not individually, specifically. He says, this is the will of God, that you be holy. This is the will of God, that you love God with all that you have. This is the will of God, that you love your neighbor. Those are all things about you and how you are supposed to live in line with the will of God. But they're not just for you as an individual. This is God's will overall. It's been revealed to us. This is what God wants. And so when we're wondering, 
man, what do I do about this job choice? I don't know, we have option A and option B, and both of them might be good options. Pick one. If it's in line with the, the character of God, if it's not out of line with the Scripture, if it is in a way that you can reflect God in that way, just, just choose. We need to worry less about finding God's will for our particular circumstance and focus more on finding out the character and nature of God. And then always reflect that. Always reflect that. We don't need to know when or how or if situations will change. We ought to stand ready to change our plans knowing that we don't know everything. Not everything has been revealed to us. We just want to be consistent with the character of God. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's willing to change plans. He's not saying, I need to stay on this particular path because I know God's individual plan for my life. No, he said, I didn't know the Corinthians were going to react that way. And so I'm changing my plans, but this is still consistent with the character of God. I'm trying to live faithful life before them. Think about this building. I mean, Sojourn never set out to buy this building, in case you're wondering. We were fine for a while with where we were at. But the situation changed. So we started looking out. We didn't actually even look to buy a building. We are just looking, where's the space that can fit all of us where people can get equipped with the Word of God? We didn't think, you know what, let's find a place that has water stains on the walls. Or that gives Jay a headache because he looks after the lighting is so bad each week. I wonder... We didn't say those things. We, we changed our plans because the situation changed. We said, we're not able to do what we want to do as a body. We need a place. And this place happened to be it. God's good hand of providence, right? And this is Paul's perspective. Open-handed, willing to change his travel plans as long as he's being consistent with the character of God, which he says he is. And so what we're seeing is, is I think when we're, we're looking at this change of travel plans, is, is Paul's also giving us this criteria. Criteria how to make decisions. Is it consistent with who you are as a person? Are you, are you consistent with the behavior you've had in the past? Or is this out of line? Do you need to be called out on something that's out of line with who you are? Is this consistent with the character of God? Does it line up with who God is? Are you reflecting God and able to reflect God in this decision and in this plan that you have before? But He gives us one more as well that all of us should have all the time. And that's love. Paul describes how this change was consistent with his life, was consistent with the character of God, and consistent with love. Verse 23 says, But I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, Paul didn't change his plans out of selfishness. He wasn't thinking, what's the easiest road for me? He was considering them. He says, I was working with you for your joy. I was working with you that you would stand firm in your faith. Paul is making plans not to clear his name and say, oh, they bring an attack against me? Let's make a sorrowful visit. Oh, they're, they're, they're saying something about me again? Let's write a harsh letter. He's not changing his plans to clear his own name. He's working with them, he says, for their joy, for their faith. But Paul knows that true joy only comes from right standing with God. So he's willing to change his plans to say what needs to be said in order for that to happen for their sake. He's willing to do what's necessary for their joy. Change plans and come under question, he's willing to do that for their joy. For their joy, Paul's doing this. Paul didn't think... Man, I don't want to make another painful visit. He says, I don't think that would be good for you if I made another painful visit out of love, out of His working with Him. He continues in verse 2, For if I cause you pain, 
Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain, for I felt sure of all of you that you that my joy would be the joy of you all. He says making another visit might intensify these problems. Like, there is something going on and we might need to just let it rest for a little bit. Let it lie. We don't need to attack that with another sorrowful visit at this point. But he also thought, maybe if I stay away and I don't say anything, then this is going to fester and build up wounds and problems. And so he writes to them. In lieu of coming to them, he writes this harsh letter to them. So he he attacked it the best way that he felt would be good for their joy, their faith. He did this so that their next visit, when he does come, wouldn't be full of sorrow, but would be full of joy for everybody as they've responded to the gospel. And then he gives us this main reason that he wrote this sorrowful letter, that he's changed the plans as he was. In verse 4, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Confrontation can be one of the clearest proofs of love. He one of the clearest displays that someone actually cares about your joy and your faith is this confrontation. Clearly, Paul had confronted them. We didn't even see the the first correspondence. We saw 1 Corinthians. He confronted their sin. We didn't see this sorrowful visit, but he confronted their sin. We didn't see this harsh letter. He confronted their sin. And here again, he's doing it again in 2 Corinthians. Paul is willing to do what's necessary out of love for them, out of their joy in their faith. He wants them to stand firm. And so confrontation is one of the clearest proofs he has of this. I wrote this letter, this harsh letter to you that we don't have in the Scripture with anguish of heart and with many tears. And that was to show His abundant love. Proverbs 3 says this, that the Lord reproves him whom He loves. Proverbs 27 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Correction and discipline and approaching someone, confronting them their sin, can be one of the clearest displays of love. And it seems like the Corinthians have missed it. Or maybe these opponents have stirred this up and said, you know what, see how he's talking to you? Love would never do that. It's not hard to imagine that, especially in our day and time, that that's what they have done. But he says, this harsh letter wasn't emotionless. I wasn't some robotic rebuke that I was giving to you. I wasn't doing this to cause you pain. I was doing this to show you love. When we discipline our kids, I always tell them, why do I discipline you? Why do I spank you? It's not because I want to cause you pain or I enjoy this process because I love you. I have them tell me that so that they know that I spank and I discipline because I love them. They want to connect the dots. And sometimes that's the best way to show love. Not to let you run in your own way. In rebuke and in reproof and in correction and in discipline, let us not miss the love that's been displayed. Amen. And on the other side, let us not refrain from displaying it. In our lives, may love be the reason that we make and or change our plans. Not love of self, but true love that's putting others' interests above our own. We shouldn't be these iron-fisted people, these iron-hearted people. We should be people that want to display love in however that takes place in response to the situation. And this is what Paul has been doing. Paul wasn't, wasn't motivated by anger. wasn't motivated by pride. But in his love, in his abundant love for them, he changed plans. 
I think this is evident that he even responds to them at all. He could have just said, I'm done. I've got other things to do. Surely I can do better work than this. But he stays at it because he loves them. He was displaying his love for them. And so this is what he's saying. In Paul's change of plans, what we have is this this good example. This criteria for decisions. Is it consistent with our behavior as believers? Is it consistent with the character of God? And is it consistent with love? This is what Paul is, is holding up before them. My conscience is clear. I'm living and behaving in a way that's, that's been consistent before you. I'm living and behaving and even changing my plans in a way that's still consistent with the character and nature of God. And I'm living in a way that's consistent with my love for you. Even writing this harsh letter because I do it not to cause you pain, but to show you the abundant love I have for you. And so we could think through, is my life, my decision making, my changing my mind, is it, is it to reflect the character of God? Is my life and how I'm responding to this person in this situation, am I acting out of love toward them? Or am I trying to clear my own name and acting out of anger, frustration, or even pride? Now there's been a misunderstanding surrounding this change of plans by Paul. Why defend it? Why clear it up? Why does Paul need to do this? Well, something much bigger is at stake. It's not just Paul and his integrity alone that's at stake. There's something much bigger, and I think that's why Paul approaches this situation. Because the rejection of Paul to the Corinthians is a rejection of the gospel. To question Paul's integrity was to bring into question the gospel itself. And so Paul defends his change of plans not to clear up his own name, not to vent his anger or to make something right in his life, but he's working with them for their joy. He's trying to defend not himself, but the cause of the gospel in and through them. That they might have joy, that there might be mutual boasting, that they might stand firm in their faith. He's doing it for the sake of the gospel. Paul defends his change of plans, not for himself, but for God. I'm thankful for plans being changed. I was on a path that was going to hell. I was by nature a child of wrath, born in sin, listening to and following the prince of the power of the air. But something happened. God Himself intervened to change my plans. So that when I was an enemy of God, He has reconciled me and made me a friend. Jesus intervenes for our joy and for our faith. And in the Lord's Supper, that's what we do is we celebrate that very reality. That we were lost, that we were children of darkness, that we were following our own desires, our own flesh against God, and God intervened. Something happened to change our course, to change our plans, that now we want to glorify and honor God with our lives. And so the Lord's Supper, this is what we're reminded of. That God Himself took on flesh. That God Himself intervened in our lives by His body, by His blood. He ripped us away from the life that we were living and turned us to a better reality, a more lasting joy. And so Christ came and He said, the night He was betrayed, He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is, this is the, my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And all who would partake of this are saying, Christ has forgiven me. I've turned from my sins. I've trusted in Christ. So this is my body which has been broken for you. That you would see this and know that when I have been broken for you, that you have a place now with the Father. Not because of what you've done, but because of my body that was broken. And so when we come to this table, we're standing upon not our works, 
not our right beliefs or even our right behavior. We're standing upon the finished work of Christ. We're standing upon this solid rock that says a better word to us than we ever deserve. You are children based on what I have done. And so what we want you to do is we want you to celebrate this reality today. Come and tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and be reminded that by your faith in Christ, you have been reconciled to a God that you have no business being around in your sin. That you have been welcomed in as friends and indeed children of this King. And so I encourage you, after we pray, come and be reminded of this reality. If you're not a believer, this is a sacred family meal. This meal isn't for you. Stay and take Christ and said, believe upon Him. Turn your life over to Him. Let Him change your course, change your plans for your ultimate joy. If you don't know what that means, please come and find us. We would love to talk to you more about that. But if you're a believer, come and celebrate this meal with us today. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank You for being so faithful, so consistent, so great to continue to carry out and be faithful to every single one of Your promises, that not one of them will be unfulfilled, that not one of them will go unturned, that You will make sure that You make good on every single one of them. We know this because we know who You are. We know Your character. You've revealed it to us. We can trust You. So God, I pray that all of us would just lean fully in on You, trusting fully in You, those who are unbelievers, that they do it for the first time, that they turn their lives over for their ultimate joy into Your hands and say, God, let Your will be done here. And for those of us who are believers, God, please work in us to help us to trust You more, to live for You in a better way that reflects Your character, reflects the love that You have shown us. And God, as we take this meal, may You be glorified as we stand up and proclaim in faith that we have no reason to be at Your table other than the body and blood of Christ. But because He did die, but because His blood was shed, we can come with this boldness to this table, to Your table, and eat with You as friends and children. God, may we do that with confidence in a way that reflects who You are and to Your glory. Thank You for this church and for Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.